It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Innovation in the financing space. Australia is the renewable energy pathfinder around the world. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne via remote recordings, syndicated around Australia on the community radio network and podcast on the internet at 3cr.org.au. Both the BZE Community Show and this, the Science and Solutions Show, are now also available on iTunes and Stitcher. So please subscribe and rate us to help others find the shows. Five weeks ago, Professor Andrew Blakers joined our program to discuss his article, Really Australia, It's Not That Hard, 10 Reasons Why Renewable Energy Is the Future. Half an hour wasn't long enough for all the interesting side conversations that the interview sparked, so he's back this week to continue the conversation. In case you've forgotten, Andrew is Professor of Engineering at the Australian National University. He joins us today to discuss renewable energy capacity around the world. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for joining us again. Hi, Kay. Thank you. Andrew, let's start with the bad news. According to Renew Economy, in the 2020 edition of Sustainable Development Report, Australia's score for climate action saw it ranked second last, sitting at 176 of 177 countries that were assessed with oil and gas heavy Brunei, the only country that received a worse score. This is in contrast to the figures you gave us last time about Australia's high rates of solar uptake. You said Australia is deploying PV and wind at a rate of 250 watts per year per capita, which is four or five times faster than the European Union, USA, Japan and China. So why do we still rate so low on climate action? Well, it's simply plain wrong. Um, it's an accidental fact that Australia is actually uh, up in the leading pact. It was, uh, it's got very little to do with um, a sympathetic federal government, a lot to do with sympathetic state governments, and most of all to do with the fact that there's a technological revolution that's running straight over the policy and preferences of uh, federal government in Australia. Uh, it's happening as a technology push. It's got very little to do with policy and very little to do with what the federal government actually wants to happen. But the fact is, Australia is the renewable energy pathfinder around the world and I think is among the top most important countries in the world because we are showing how it can be done. When you say with a number of other countries, which other countries are in the same league? Uh, well, countries that spring to mind would be Denmark, Sweden, Spain, and a few other countries and sub-national regions, uh, such as the Australian Capital Territory, which are moving very fast towards or have reached uh, 100% renewable electricity. And the net, that's the springboard for moving on to 100% renewable energy by renewable electrification of all energy functions, such as transport and heating and industry. And, of course, South Australia is working very hard and also Queensland now in that area. 
and, and New South Wales. So all the states now have zero by 2050 targets. The federal government is simply not willing to go that step. If all the states live up to their expectations, it will get there with, with the willy-nilly. But uh, actually, it will get there a lot faster, I think, because the technology is moving so fast. I think everyone understands exponential growth much better now after COVID. Something that is very small today in a very short space of time and suddenly very big. And that's exactly the case with uh, solar and wind. It's already fairly large in Australia, but it's going to become just universal in, over the next decade. By 2030, there'll be close on 100% renewable electricity and we'll have made deep inroads into renewable electrification of transport and heating. Yes, I think COVID, you can take some good out of it, can't you? Um, showing that exponential growth is possible and this is how it happens. And of course, they're saying that with regard to electric vehicles as well as renewable energy. That's right. Anyone who thinks that the internal combustion engine in 2030 will still rule the roost uh, has rocks in their head. Um, there's a couple of other lessons we can take out of COVID. One is that if you actually listen to people who understand what they're talking about, you can do quite well. And the uh, second is that COVID has put a huge dent in certain categories of carbon dioxide emissions, no most notably, of course, aviation. And uh, this is going to be reflected in a sharp step down in greenhouse gas emissions in Australia and many other countries around the world over the next year. There's a lag in the emissions data, but by this time next year, it'll be obvious to everybody that we are well on track to meeting our Paris targets in 2030. And in fact, we are setting all of the parameters up that would allow us to go very far beyond our Paris targets by 2030 at zero cost. Yes, it, it is interesting. That is the other lesson that COVID is teaching us is that we can listen to the science if it's important enough to us. Yeah, it's a strange concept, isn't it? You actually listen to people who know what they're talking about instead of talk show hosts or people who write, or chefs, or people who um, write commentary coming from a political bias. Yeah. Climate and technology and COVID don't care what you say. Uh, it's facts on the ground that count. And in this particular case, facts on the ground is that the technology of solar and wind is running right over the top of the Murdoch press and uh, right-wing people in the federal government. It's, it's simply happening regardless of what they want. And it's economically so much more viable than fossil fuel energy anyway. Well, uh, yeah, that's what that means. There is so no much. argument anymore, is there? Um, well, there, there are still uh, people who put up ridiculous arguments, but the fact is that the private sector has seen the light and the state governments have seen the light. And interestingly, South Australia is now headed for the cheapest electricity because it's got the most, uh, on the mainland, because it's got the most renewables. The facts that's on fantastic. the ground are that renewables won. Just get over it. Fantastic news. Well done, South Australia. So you highlight that Australia is experiencing a remarkable renewable energy transition that has global significance. The pipeline for new wind and solar PV electricity systems is about six to seven gigawatt per year, which actually equates to 250 watts per person per year, compared with about 50 watts per person per year for the European Union, Japan, China and the US. And excitingly, you've just said that um, we're probably going to reach 100% by 2032 and 50% by 2024. But why is that globally significant? Uh, well, perhaps I can just add a few more figures. So Australia is installing solar and wind at about 10 times the global average. Australia has the most per capita 
uh, solar photovoltaics installed in the world. It is installing solar photovoltaics faster per capita than any other country. It is installing solar photovoltaics and wind combined faster than any other country. So in fact, the install rate of solar PV and wind in Australia is uh, nearly double the next fastest country, which is Sweden, and a bunch of the other um, nor uh, northern countries, which are doing quite well with wind. And the reason for this is there's compelling economics. Australia's got great wind, great sun, great pumped hydro opportunities, and, and fairly expensive gas, despite the fact that we're the world's second largest gas producer. And we have an aging coal fleet. We're the third largest uranium exporter. It's, it's a real strange mix of the best in all sorts of things, the, uh, the best in good things, which is solar and wind, the best in bad things, which is export of fossil fuels. But the fact is that in Australia, the economics are simply compelling, and that's why it's going this way. Another very important fact, uh, factor in Australia is that we have critical mass. We know how to install solar on rooftops. We know how to install solar farms. We know how to install wind farms. Um, and a country to our near north, Indonesia, also has great, um, great sun, but it doesn't have this critical mass. And it takes a few years to get this critical mass to really take off. India has got it. So India and Indonesia are similar in many respects. Indonesia is among the world's uh, least uh, productive in terms of installing solar PV. India is um, really uh, going quite fast. And it's the critical mass that counts. We've got the critical mass, and so we will simply continue to install solar and wind at high rates in the absence of really concerted federal government intervention against solar and wind, which I don't think would be easy to do. I would have thought that countries like Sweden and Denmark would have hit a critical mass as well, and much earlier than Australia. But you seem to think Australia is the leader here. Oh, well, Australia's far and away the leader in terms of per capita install rates. Um, the, the renewable energy system that is, by, uh, which has been by far the dominant system, of course, is hydro. And Australia has reasonable hydro per capita by world standards, but hydro is fundamentally limited in almost every country because there aren't all that many rivers you can dam. Solar PV and wind are the key technologies because they are replicable. Almost everybody has solar or wind or both. And so Australia demonstrating global leadership per capita in solar and wind install rates means that what we do can be copied, can be replicated in most other countries. In particular, in the 70% uh, of the world's population that lives in the Sun Belt, that's plus or minus 35 degrees of latitude. This is where most of the growth in population and demand and greenhouse gas emissions is happening and Australia is showing how it can be done. We are a sunbelt country as well. So plus and minus 35 degrees, that would be what from about New South Wales upwards up to what northern China? Is that the sort of region you're talking about? Yeah. Um, one way of look, thinking about it is Africa is almost exactly contained within those um, latitude ranges. Europe is entirely north of 35 degrees, or nearly entirely north, apart from a couple of bits of Italy. So it runs across almost, almost all of India is contained in the Sun Belt, uh, large, about half of China, and surprisingly Japan, right up to Tokyo. Mm -hmm. And virtually all of the population of South America is in the Sun Belt and a big chunk of southern United States is in the Sun Belt. 
So this is where uh, three quarters of the world's population is, and this is where there's a lot of sun, there's no cold winters, or, uh, except in a couple of places, and importantly, there's, there's little variation in solar intensity by season, and that means you, you need not very much seasonal storage. And yet, last time we spoke, you said that Japan wouldn't be able to do solar PV, it would be offshore wind that would be the main renewable energy that they should be looking at? Uh, actually, they do have both options. The offshore wind option in Japan is immense. Uh, they have large territorial sea being an island. Floating and anchored wind turbines can provide much more energy than Japan would ever need. And as it turns out, onshore solar PV also is highly prospective through agrivoltaics. So this is where you put solar systems on high supports, a few metres high, on flat agricultural land, rice paddies, for example. And you can cover 30 or 40% of the rice paddy and only reduce the amount of rice you produce by about 10% or so. So the farmer loses 10% of their agricultural income but gets a second cash crop in terms of electricity sold into the grid. And agrivoltaics is... Uh, destined to go very far in Japan and Indonesia and Southeast Asia in, in many, many places. The reason why you can cover you know, 40% of a crop but only lose 10% of the yield is that the yield of the crop is determined by many factors, temperature, water supply, fertiliser, pesticides, as well as sunlight. So you cut a little bit of the sunlight, um, or 40% of the sunlight, but you only lose 10% of the crop. And uh, this sounds like a pretty good deal for the farmers and it's a pretty good deal for densely populated countries that have got good sun like Japan and Indonesia and Southeast Asia. So the farmers would be able to benefit financially from it? Oh, you'd hope so. Um, as well as the, the reduction in the land requirements? Yes. I mean, the farmer would lease uh, some of their rice paddies to uh, companies that would then mount the solar panels and the solar company would pay a lease fee to the farmer. Is, this is no different to the way in which wind farms happen in Australia. The yes, wind yes. farm company does not own the land. They lease the land from the, from the farmer. If you've just tuned in, we're speaking to Andrew Blakers from ANU. Is it more expensive to have floating wind generated? Um, it is at the moment because it's quite small. It's a standard wind turbine mounted on effectively a boat, a very specialised boat, which is anchored to the sea floor. So there's a downside in that you have to buy not only the wind turbine, but also the boat. The upside is that out to sea you have much better wind and you'll get capacity factors of 50-60%, which means that the, the wind turbine will reach its nominal capacity for more than half the time. And this is in the same range as a coal-fired power station or a nuclear power station. So the old argument that you need lots more wind capacity than the same amount of coal or nuclear to get the same amount of energy is simply not correct for offshore wind. There was an article in the New York Times earlier this year that highlights that Japan now plans to build as many as 22 new coal-burning power plants at 17 different sites over the next five years. So... All those power plants would admit nearly as much carbon dioxide annually 
as the number of passenger cars sold each year in the United States. So wouldn't that lock in their commitment to continue using fossil fuel in the future? No. I confidently predict they'll go broke if they do that. The owners of those power stations will not succeed for more than a few years in actually being competitive. The price of wind and solar just keeps going down. There's another important factor here, and that is that in order to go to 100% renewable energy, that is to drive oil, gas and coal out of the economy, you need to, you know, roughly speaking, triple your electricity production. So that means that you not only build enough wind and solar to meet electrical demand, but you also build enough to meet the transport demand by electric vehicles displacing imported oil, and then the heating demand displacing imported gas, and also the demand for industry, uh, uh, industry which is everything from aviation fuel, plastics, ammonia, and the like. So you need to drive all oil, gas and coal out of the economy, which means that you get rid of about three quarters of your emissions. You need to roughly triple electricity demand. So a few extra coal plants, 22 coal plants is just peanuts compared with what Australia is building in solar and wind each year. And Australia is a small country. It's not, not very important in the scheme of things because by the mid 2020s, we'll be driving oil, gas and coal out of the rest of the economy as well. And that that, that's mean, Australia, though. But no, this is worldwide. At Japan, if they're yeah. saying that they'll build those in the next five years, they have a life of twenty odd years at least. So you can't. I can't see that they would be getting out of coal by twenty forty, for instance. I can see them getting out of coal in twenty thirty when wind and solar is simply cheaper than the operational cost of coal power stations. That is what is happening in Australia. Why is it that South Australia has no more coal plant? Why is it that Hazelwood went out of business? Why is nobody building any new coal power plant to replace the Australian coal fleet? I predict that over the 2020s, there's going to be premature retirement of most of Australia's coal fleet. And this will happen not just in Australia, but all around the world, because the price of wind and solar will undercut the operational cost of coal. That's the cost of the fuel and maintenance. And uh, this will happen in Japan as well. Japan's got great sun and great wind. And it's not immune to these economics. And the fact that Japan will also be greatly increasing its electricity demand through electrification of transport, heating and industry, tripling it, means that solar and wind is going to meet most of that tripling. Interestingly, today in the Financial Times, Japan's environment minister hailed as a turning point his country's climate change policy after vowing to slash its much-criticised support for coal in the developing world. And Tokyo has provided billions of dollars in low-interest loans to build coal power plants in India, Vietnam and Indonesia through the um, Japan Bank. And, of course, they're using equipment from Japanese manufacturers such as Mitsubishi, Hitachi and Toshiba. So that means at least it seems that they're heralding a change to their coal energy attitude. Um, Yes, and that's good news. But uh, I'd just like to draw the the broad picture. There are ratbag countries that want to go out and build new coal plant here, there and everywhere. And Japan was one of them. China still is. But it's really small in the scheme of things. In 2019, about 170 gigawatts of new wind and solar was built and about 30 gigawatts of 
new coal and about minus six gigawatts of net new nuclear. In other words, more nuclear closed than open. The only country that's uh, building significant amounts of coal is China. If you ignore China for the moment, the amount of coal plant is going down every year. And the only reason it's actually going up is because China is building new coal. So the, the world, apart from China, has turned the corner. Coal plant is closing faster than it's opening and it's being replaced by wind and solar. The most important thing to do now in, at a global level is simply pour more money into the technology development of wind and solar because wind and solar is running over the top of fossil fuel for economic reasons because it's a technology-led revolution. It's not a policy-led revolution. You mentioned that China still is investing a lot in coal and China and India together in 2018 accounted for more than 80% of that total. That's correct, but it was almost all China. India had a modest amount, 10 or less, much less than 10 gigawatts of new coal was built in China. And that's peanuts compared with the amount of solar and wind that's coming in. It really is peanuts. Okay, Andrew, let's um, have a look at Indonesia. So there's challenges in, in, in neighbouring countries with transitioning to renewables. And you shared an article from the conversation about Indonesia's renewable capability. It has abundant sunlight, as you said, and if you include water and building installation, enough land space for solar and storage to supply all the electricity needs now and into the future. But despite the cost of the dropping costs of solar and wind, it accounted only for about 1.7% of electricity production last year, and the government projects that it will be still less than 10% by 2050. Yes, I think this is cloud cuckoo land, the government projection. There are, it, it's all about the social engineering in Indonesia. Indonesia is a major coal producer. It has large amounts of coal exports. It has a very, very powerful fossil fuel lobby, just as Australia has. And it has a monopoly electricity provider. And all of this makes it quite hard for an independent producer to come in and say, well, we can undercut your new coal power station and we'll do it with solar because they'll be inhibited from putting the electricity back into the grid and getting a fair payment. So until that's overcome, it's going to be difficult. But it's thin edge of the wedge stuff. If a few producers can somehow wangle access to the Indonesian grid for their solar electricity, whether from a rooftop or from a floating PV system or from an agrivoltaic PV system, then uh, quickly critical mass will build. People will see that the grid doesn't collapse when you get to 1%, 5%, 10%, 50% solar, and the conversion could go very fast. It will be helped immensely in Indonesia by the fact that the Indonesian population expects rapidly increasing amounts of per capita electricity consumption, and that allows the PV to meet a rapidly growing demand. So and it doesn't directly compete with the existing coal. It, it simply goes for the growth in demand. Why is that? Why is that changing? Well, Indonesia at the moment only has about one megawatt hour per capita consumption of electricity. Australia is up around 11, Singapore about nine. And so it's quite obvious that um, Indonesia has a lot of growing to do in per capita electricity demand. 
Indonesia also has a good number of pumped hydro sites or potential sites, I believe. Probably about 500 times more than it actually needs to stabilise 100% renewables. And it's also got a greenhouse gas emissions target that's similar to Australia? The electrification of the energy system in, in Indonesia, renewable electrification, hopefully will mean that Indonesia's current very low per capita greenhouse gas emissions will stay low. Yes, so in Indonesia, it's a social engineering. In Australia, uh, everyone in Australia is well aware of the very determined pushback from the fossil fuel industry and the right-wing elements of the Liberal Party and the Murdoch press against renewables. That's now being overcome simply by the fact that facts on the ground are that solar and wind are so much cheaper. It's easy to uh, win that argument when you're at 25% renewables, much tougher when you're at 1.5% renewables because it's, it, you can't really point to uh, examples in your own country of where the alleged problem simply doesn't exist. But the, the problem in Australia, the, the, the grid will collapse if you get beyond 10% solar and wind and all would be just would be living in the dark in caves is complete nonsense. We're at 20% or nearly 20% now solar and wind and the grid has not collapsed. Um, there's easy, workable, straightforward solutions. Uh, that's now obvious in Australia. It's not obvious in Indonesia. And that's why Australia is important. We are the global renewable energy pathfinder for the sunshine countries and sunshine belt countries. And we, people can point to Australia and saying they're doing it with solar and wind. They're not doing it with geothermal or hydro or bio. They're doing it with replicable solar and wind. We can do it too. Okay, Andrew, where can our listeners find out more about this? Um, you can go to our website at the Australian National University. If you put in my name, Blakers, B-L-A-K-E-R-S, at ANU, you'll fairly quickly find the RE100, standing for Renewable Energy 100 website. And there we've got a global atlas of pumped hydro sites where you can go and look in your favoured area and find out a huge amount of detail about any one of 600,000 sites that we found. There's papers on 100% renewable electricity systems and there's a lot of popular science articles on uh, all sorts of aspects to do with renewable energy. Thanks so much for your time today, Andrew. Thank you, Kay. We've been speaking to Andrew Blakers from ANU, the Australian National University. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the climate change solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the community radio network. Previous episodes of the show are available on iTunes and Stitcher, so please subscribe to help others find the show. If you enjoy the program and can donate to help cover airtime costs and keep us on the air, please go to the BZE website and click on the Donate button. Thanks for listening and we look forward to you joining us again next week. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.